Welcome to Supreme Myths. I'm very excited today to have as my guest Professor Andrew Koppelman of Northwestern Law School. He has one of the best named chairs in the United States, the John Paul Stevens Professor of Law. Uh, Andy received his undergraduate degree from the University of Chicago, a master's, PhD, and JD from Yale. He is the author of too many articles to talk about, too many essays and, and um, social media posts to talk about, and a bunch of books. The latest one with the fantastic name, Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Greed and Delusion. Um, for those of you watching on YouTube, there's the book. Um, and I have read it. It is fantastic. Andy, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's my pleasure. So what made you write this book about libertarianism and uh, what is your general thesis in the book? All right. So uh, this book grew out of an earlier book that I wrote about the Obamacare litigation, where I found that uh, the litigation was driven by libertarians, preeminently Professor Randy Barnett, trying to smuggle libertarianism into the Constitution where it actually isn't. And uh, so in order to write that, I needed to get a handle on libertarianism. And it was frustrating because I found that there just isn't any book out there that gives you a basic overview of libertarianism, what it is, where it came from, what the major forms of it are. Uh, there are a few books, but they're all written by fanboys. Uh, they're all written by people who are trying to sell it to you. There's just not enough critical distance. And so uh, I found myself uh, you know, having more to say after I finished the Obamacare book and wanting to dig in deeper. And the basic claim of the book is that libertarianism comes in flavors, some more bitter than others. Uh, that uh, it gets started in uh, the 1940s with Friedrich Hayek's effort to try to show that central economic planning was going to be wasteful and tyrannical, which was a claim that was really better applied to the British Labor Party at that time than the United States, because the British Labor Party really did want to do central economic planning. That was never part of Franklin Roosevelt's agenda in the United States. And uh, there's a lot to be said for Hayek's idea of opening up markets with a safety net for uh, people who don't do well. Uh, even today, uh, you know, something that's not noticed on the left is that Hayek really has triumphed. If you look at the positions of Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they also don't want central economic planning. They want a free market economy with a really robust Scandinavian level safety net for the people who don't do well, which is a steadily growing population in the United States. So Andy, I'm sorry, can I interrupt uh, for one second? Does, does, yeah. that, that was so interesting. Does that mean that the term socialist has changed as well? <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. The, uh, if uh, you look at the way in which uh, socialist gets used, and we look at surveys, you know, Gallup has been conducting surveys of what people mean by socialism, and a lot of people mean a really robust safety net that takes care of the losers in a free market, which is not its classical meaning. Right. Its classical right. meaning is government ownership of the means of production. So I've argued elsewhere, we should really stop using this word because it has so many different meanings to so many different people right. that it is a recipe for misunderstanding each other. 
I want to distinguish the kind of free market ideology that Hayek is offering from the much more radical, minimal state, nearly anarchist libertarianism that's being offered by people like Murray Rothbard or Robert Nozick or Ayn Rand or Charles Koch, uh, which is far more extreme and dangerous. Uh, and I guess the most dangerous thing about it is that they have no good way of thinking about problems like pollution. Uh, and so libertarianism, because Koch has been so politically influential, libertarianism is endangering the planet. Had libertarian ideology not had the kind of influence that it's had in the last few decades, I don't think the planet would be facing the catastrophe that it is facing now because the United States would have started ameliorating carbon emissions probably uh, in uh, the as late as early as uh, the early 1990s. It was seriously being discussed in the first uh, Bush administration. So, so the libertarianism that the Republican Party leadership espouses now, which I think is dominated by Charles Koch type thinking. When people, when, when lay people, and I consider myself a lay person in this debate, th think about libertarianism, we think about, I don't want to wear a motorcycle hel helmet. Mm -hmm. Oh, if I want to go in my room and smoke marijuana, I should be allowed to do that. And we'll get to drugs in a few minutes. Mm -hmm. I, I take it though, that's not the kind of libertarianism that Koch is trying to force upon the American people through the Supreme mm -hmm. Court and other political entities. It is a minor theme. But yeah. uh, you know, one of the things that transformed libertarianism in uh, the early 1970s was incorporating these ideas, which really hadn't loomed very large in libertarian thinking. Uh, so uh, the kind of revolution in American culture that happened then, libertarianism got on that bus. And, uh, and its selling point always has been, this is going to make you freer. This is going to give you greater control over your own life. And with respect to things like uh, you know, gay sex or marijuana, uh, you know, they've got a point. Yes. On the other hand, the claim that an absolutely minimum state is going to help you lead your life doesn't work so well when you deal with dangers that we all face that are not the result of anybody violating anybody's rights. Uh, pollution is one, uh, dangers in the workplace, uh, disease. The only reason why we were able to get COVID under control with the vaccine is because of massive taxing and spending by the government. The government had a lot of money because it has the power to tax a lot of money. And they shoved an awful lot of it into extremely risky research that the private sector would not have undertaken at, all by itself because right. it was so risky. And that's why we have a vaccine. So where, where does libertarianism fit into in terms of military spending? So much of the Republican Party leadership, and I really want to distinguish between the leadership and the rank, you know, the rank and file, but so much of the leadership uh, has always been in favor of huge military spending, mm -hmm. which is government use of taxpayer dollars mm -hmm. for, you know, mm -hmm. um, but I assume the classic form of libertarianism in America embraces that as that's just defending our country. And that is one of the purposes of government. Do I have that right? Yeah, uh, you know, I don't talk about this very much yeah, in my book. Yeah. Uh, it's a minor theme. And, you know, different libertarians have different views about it. And uh, so, I mean, it's, I don't think that it's anything that, I mean, derives uh, from 
libertarianism in any straightforward way. Anarchists like Rothbard obviously want there to be no police, no army at all. Let us just all have private protective associations. Right. Uh, and uh, there is a tendency uh, for libertarians, because they are suspicious of institutions and want self-reliance, to uh, move toward an isolationist foreign policy, which again was one of their selling points in the early 1970s, when the most conspicuous fact about American foreign policy was the disastrous continuing war in Vietnam. Right. You mentioned, you mentioned Randy Barnett earlier um, and his, his opposition to Obamacare. Randy's been on my podcast. We, we have a, we, we, we're friends in some ways. Um, but I, I wonder, well, two things about Randy. First of all, I do wonder if he was more upset about federalism. I mean, would Randy have really objected to state? I don't think he objected to what Massachusetts did, for example, with health insurance. I think he objected mostly to the federal government doing it. Do I have that wrong? Well, you know, we've got to figure out, I mean, Randy wears a number of hats. Yeah. So uh, as a constitutional theorist, he thinks that the federal government ought to be way smaller than it is, that lots of matters should be left to the states. Uh, but as a political philosopher, he thinks that the state should not be uh, telling you to do anything for your own good. So any state regulation of insurance markets, I think, are highly suspect from Randy's standpoint, people should be able to work out their own contracts. Now, there is a problem of what contract theorists call asymmetrical information, where you don't know things that your counterparty knows. And insurance is a particularly opaque market because what I am buying when I buy insurance is certain future behavior by my counterparty, by the insurance company. It's very hard for me to observe that. That's why we've got regulation. Randy does not want that regulation. Right. I think that that's a recipe for predation. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I will say that Randy's most recent book with Evan Burnick takes a much broader view of Congress's Section 5 powers of the 14th mm -hmm. Amendment than the Supreme Court does and, and almost all conservatives do. Have to give have to give him credit for that. I did give him credit for that when I wrote my review of the book. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I actually believe he was surprised by what he wrote and uh, it was honest what he wrote, which was nice, mm -hmm. I, I thought. All right, I have no doubt. Randy is an honest man who honestly follows the argument where it leads. Going, I think that's true. Uh, going back to your book. So if, if you have, uh, we're going to talk about specific examples of how your libertarianism in its forms applies to various subjects. Before we do that, though, I got the impression reading the book that you have kind of a love-hate relationship is not the right exact phrase, but there's, there's a lot about libertarianism you are sympathetic to, and there's a lot that you object to. And before we get into specific categories, do I have that right? Is that a fair assessment? Uh, yeah. Well, I was I had not seriously read Hayek since graduate school, and I found that uh, I had more sympathy for him now yeah. than I remembered having. Uh, and with respect to uh, the potential of markets, he's absolutely right. Uh, you know, I identify myself as a person on the left. I am concerned about the worst off people. I'm concerned about the poorest people. We've massively opened up markets in the world. Socialism collapsed in uh, the Soviet Union, was abandoned by India, was abandoned by China. And the consequence is that the proportion of the world's population who's living in desperate poverty has absolutely plunged. It's less than 10% now. Uh, and so if you are on the left, you should regard this as cause for celebration. 
But Hayek also is way too suspicious of the capacities of the state. Uh, he is way too nervous about any kind of redistribution. He thinks that it's going to put us on the slippery slope to central economic planning. In those respects, he's a nut. <laughs> I, I get the impression that for most of the libertarians you talk about, there are some serious sides and some nutty sides, which, which makes mm -hmm. the book very entertaining, by the way. Mm -hmm. You know what? I, I, I'm thinking about this. The story you begin with in the book is so compelling. And, mm -hmm. and the reason I think the reason you, you called the book Burning Down the House. Can you go through that story real quick? Mm -hmm. I think listeners might really be interested. Okay, so uh, this happened back in 2010. Uh, there was a county in Tennessee that decided essentially to privatize its fire protection. Instead of having a fire department of their own, they would contract or they would have individual homeowners contract with a nearby town to deliver fire protection one by one. And so the town basically acted like a private provider of fire protection in uh, Opium County. And uh, Gene Cranick's house caught fire and he called the fire department and they said, no, you forgot to pay your bill. We're not coming. Uh, so they came actually because he had neighbors who had paid for uh, fire protection and they waited to see whether the fire would spread from his house to other houses. When it looked like it was going to, they sprayed the grass with some water. Um, and uh, there was a vigorous debate after that about whether uh, the fire department had done the right thing. And there were a number of prominent intellectuals and journalists with libertarian sympathies who said the fire department had done the right thing. So you have uh, people like Glenn Beck or Kevin Williamson or Jonah Goldberg saying this is what the future needs to look like. And there were people on the left also who pounced on this episode and said, this is the true face of capitalism. Right. You know, this is what free markets are. And I think that both sides misunderstand uh, the forms that libertarianism takes. There are a number of varieties. The strange story is how one got from Hayek, who would never have let the house burn, who would have certainly have promoted a public fire department, uh, to where we are now. And that's the story you tell in your book, and it's just fascinating. Yeah. So, so let's begin with some specific issues. Let's just take as a given and I've had so many crim pro professors on this podcast who have said this, that the war on drugs is a disaster. We all agree the war on drugs Absolutely. is a disaster. Yeah. That I, I've never, in fact, I've never met someone who said it hasn't been a disaster. So we'll take mm -hmm. that as a given. But assuming a world where we had a reasonable effort to control dangerous drugs, which is not our world, um, should drugs – so I have two teenage um, daughters right now. And the fentanyl scare is just terrible. Not that they, they're going to go take fentanyl, but, you know, when they're 17, 18, would they experiment with marijuana? They very well might. And I hear all kinds of horror stories if you buy it in the street about, you know, fentanyl-laced other drugs and that kind of thing. Should heroin, fentanyl, cocaine be illegal? Uh, well, I mean, saying should it be legal is uh, just covers a huge range of policy possibilities in between where we are now and fentanyl being available at every 7-Eleven. Uh, there enough. are just enormous number of ways in which you could make it more difficult to get, where you could make treatment available for people who uh, have uh, problems with it, where you can educate people more than uh, you 
done now about the dangers and how to reduce the harms. But all of that stuff involves a pretty robust state spending tax money to make sure that people don't hurt themselves. And that robust state is something that libertarians also would reject. Yeah, I, I, have, I have my hunch, though, is that if you ask the Republican Party leadership who, that consider, who consider themselves libertarians, maybe Rand Paul, you know, maybe the Koch brothers, all that stuff, they, they, they want those drugs to be illegal and they want the state to enforce that, which is interesting. Well, to no, not the Kochs, I think, uh, they don't trumpet it very strongly, yeah. but, uh, you know, they're opposed to the war on drugs. I'm not sure what specifically they advocated. Right. Again, because it hasn't been their focus. Their focus has been uh, primarily on climate change and health care and infrastructure. So as, as a segue to my next question, I just want to mention yesterday I was uh, interviewed by a Swiss public radio station about the Supreme Court's term, Swiss German. And I was just amazed how knowledgeable they were about what I view as a disaster of our current Supreme Court. Um, and they care about what we do. And the reason I ask that is other countries deal with drugs very differently than we do, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And I think, maybe I'm wrong about this, much more successfully? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. It what I'm primarily interested in is the political philosophy question. Yeah. So when we get into the weeds of policy, which policies work and which ones don't, it's just not my area of expertise and I can't tell you a lot about it. But there's a prior question. The libertarian will say the state shouldn't be asking these questions. Everything you're proposing involves tax dollars and the tax dollars are stolen from people who uh, have a right to keep their money. The state shouldn't be taxing or it should be taxing at an absolute minimal and minimum. It protects uh, persons and property. Even if you could come up with some uh, drug treatment program that was entirely successful and saves people's lives, it would still violate people's rights because the state is not entitled to the money that it's spending. Right. And so you have to get over that hump before we can even start talking about the policy questions, which are highly contingent and fact sensitive. That, that I think that hump can be very large. A lot of the libertarians that I know and who I think are relatively thoughtful do mm -hmm. concede to me, and let's move over to healthcare now, that those who really can't afford mm -hmm. their own healthcare should be provided a minimal level of healthcare by the state. Um, mm -hmm. Would Hayek have agreed with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Uh, in fact, yeah. uh, you know, Hayek, uh, I mean, he's a hero to libertarians on the right, but if you read his 1960 book, uh, The Constitution of Liberty, he has a passage that attacks the British National Health Service, where all of the doctors are on the public payroll. And he says, why don't you, instead of that, create a voucher system, let people purchase health insurance on the private market. Of course, you would have to subsidize people who can't afford it. You'd have to require everybody to have health insurance and you have to require the insurers to cover even very sick people. And by the time you get to the end of the paragraph, you see that he has just described Obamacare right. in all of its basic outlines that right. uh, that's what he's proposing. So, so I'll, I want, yeah. No, no, go, no, go ahead, finish, sorry. Yeah, a lot of people uh, say, and I used to think that uh, the idea of Obamacare was initially proposed by the Heritage Foundation in the early 80s and then picked up on by Mitt Romney. But no, it goes back further than that. We've got Hayek in 1960 proposing the basic idea. So, so Andy, you, are, you, are, you wear many hats, too. We've talked about anybody. You do. Um, and and mm -hmm. I, I really 
value your views as kind of a social political commentator, which you, you know, you, you write very scholarly work and then you also write blog post type pieces that, that, I, that I, I personally really appreciate. I think a lot of people do. And that, wearing that hat, how much of an objection to Obamacare do you think was an objection? If it had been Bush care, would there have been the same objections? I don't think so. I think that uh, I mean, what really powered the objection at its source was the desire to stymie something that a Democratic president wanted to do. The, their experience uh, under the Republican experience under Clinton was that they had stymied Clinton's efforts to reform health care. And the result was that the Republicans did really well in the next election and they wanted to do that again. Now, there is a price to this kind of political strategizing. It means that there is this massive problem of a growing number of Americans without health insurance. And it was growing at the time that Obama came into office and was likely to continue to grow, particularly among the poorest workers. And so the Republican strategy basically rested on the uh, assumption that we're just going to leave that problem unsolved. Right. Those people, we're just not going to help them. We're not going to let Obama help them because defeating Obama is more important than giving those people health care. Now, I think that there are issues about the ethics of politics that are raised by that. Um, and it also means that uh, to the extent that they want to complain about what got passed, they could have influenced what got passed. In fact, they in the early stages of the legislation, when they looked like uh, Republicans were going to cooperate. Over 100 Republican amendments to the legislation got added in committee, and they're right. still there. They're in the bill. I know. <laughs> so they would have had a lot more influence on the outcome if they had decided to work with Obama, who desperately wanted at least one Republican to support the bill. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I think it's really sad and tragic the governors of, of many red states didn't take the Medicaid part of Obamacare, mm -hmm. which led to just incredible suffering by, mm -hmm. by thousands Continues of people. Continues to, particularly in Texas, which has the largest uninsured population anywhere. And uh, the, uh, the governor said it's more important to uh, stick a symbolic pin in Obama, who has been out of office for some time. I know. It's crazy. And to do something on behalf of your own people. In my home state, a lot of rural hospitals really had issues um, and, and mm -hmm. deprived the, had to close and deprived a lot of people of health care. Mm -hmm. uh, one more specific question, and, th and then I want to ask you about the title of your book and then we'll move on to a couple other topics. Uh, so I want to talk about, and, and you've written a lot about the cases where a wedding uh, website supervisor, that's the actual case, the Supreme Court has this term, but also wedding cake mm -hmm. bakers and all that, yeah. opposed to having their services at same-sex weddings uh, in states where non-discrimination laws require that. And I want to point out that, that the number of states who do that is actually not that large. And you know, Alito would have you think all 50 states are coming at, you know, are coming at you to deprive you of religious liberty and hand it over to gays and lesbians. It's just not true. But anyway, Colorado does have that kind of law. And, and this case is coming this term. It's called 303 Creative. And it's a woman who runs a company that does not that, that wants to announce that it won't do websites for same-sex weddings and then not do. Um, now, she's not been asked yet, really, officially, so I'm not mm -hmm. sure this case is right, but, but leaving that issue aside, uh, you've done a lot of work on this. Uh, we'll get to both the free speech part and the liberty part. 
The liberty, I mean, the religious liberty part. The religious part is not part of this case. Um, mm -hmm. But as a general proposition, where do you stand on people who make a religious objection to participating in same-sex weddings? So I have yet another earlier book about yes. this. It's <laughs> called Gay Rights Versus Religious Liberty, The Unnecessary Conflict. Mm -hmm. And I argue that in cases like this, uh, that the best approach is some kind of legislative accommodation that uh, you have people like uh, I talked about an earlier case involving a bakery uh, where people just are not able to conduct the businesses that they want to conduct because they've got uh, religious compunctions. And I think just a basic principle of American politics is that uh, we should not have laws that uh, impose too much hardship on anybody. And so I would like to see some kind of accommodation uh, in this area. But I'll also say uh, that I think that uh, the job of coming up with that kind of accommodation really isn't a good job for courts. Uh, I mean, there's a problem with the way that we think about this stuff as lawyers. The lawyers, uh, and this is how a lawyer has to think about a case when he's arguing in court. The way to resolve this conflict is by devising a principle, right. a principle that is universally applicable and that will apply in all cases between right now and the heat death of the universe, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and which incidentally entails that my client wins. Right. But right. <laughs> there's a better approach, uh, well, another approach that has a long history, which is you just try to figure out what the interests are and see if you can come up with something where everybody is okay. And so that's my general uh, approach here, that uh, the three of the, uh, there, there are interesting free speech claims specifically raised by uh, 303 because they're a web designer and they involve words. But this is not really about free speech. This is really about religious liberty. This is about, you know, religious liberty claims are claims made by weird people who have uh, compunctions because of their strange beliefs that the rest of us don't have, that it is particularly hard for them to comply with some generally applicable law. And the question we should ask is, is it possible to accommodate these weird people without sacrificing what we're trying to accomplish with the law, without defeating the purpose of the law? And that, again, takes you into the weeds. So, so to some, some degree, I, if, I, if I remember your writings on this, I, I, I think the availability of other vendors is a big factor when we get into the weeds. In the South, in mm -hmm. 1963, when restaurants mm -hmm. made religious objections to serving blacks, the answer was, mm -hmm. well, but they can't, I mean, there are very few restaurants that will service blacks, yeah. that will serve blacks. That, 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 yeah, that was a situation where it was obvious that if you allowed a religious accommodation, it would completely defeat the statute. Right. Less obvious in this case. And one more question about that, because you are also, among other things, a First Amendment scholar, among mm -hmm. many other things. I, I mm -hmm. when, when, when Masterpiece Cake Shop first was bubbling up, uh, I have a different view on, li on religious liberty than you do, and I, I don't give that mm -hmm. any shrift, to be honest. I don't think anybody's mm -hmm. religion sincerely requires them not to serve people. But leaving that aside, um, I, uh, I thought from the beginning that was a really hard free speech case. And I, and I think... This web designer case is, is also hard, although less difficult. Is there a is there a way without is there a way to make a principled general rule about the line between communication or expression and non-expression? Selling widgets is non-expressive. Let's just mm -hmm. concede that. Writing poetry for a wedding is clearly expressive. 
And then we have a mm-hmm. hundred things in between. Unfortunately, in our country, this issue does go to courts. You know, I'm one who thinks mm-hmm. a lot of these issues shouldn't go to courts, but they do. Can you help out scholars and judges thinking about this and well, what kind I mean, of there person- is a, there is a well-established body of law since the O'Brien case about mm-hmm. what you do when people want to engage in behaviors for communicative purposes. Uh, and the well-established line is that uh, the state cannot compel people to say things cannot compel people to utter words that they disagree with. That's uh, arguably the case in the 303 creative case. That's why it's a hard case. And if it is going to regulate conduct, the question is, is its regulation of conduct related to the suppression of ideas? So, for example, if somebody is arrested for burning a flag, uh, everything turns on whether they're arrested for communicating an idea. If the law is a law that prohibits the desecration of a flag, that law is unconstitutional because it targets the communicative purpose of the statute. Whereas if the statute is a statute that makes it a crime to start a fire in the middle of the city, then it doesn't matter. That person's going to get convicted because there's just no free speech issue, even though he was trying to communicate something. And so I didn't think that Masterpiece was actually that hard to a baker who didn't want to bake a cake for a wedding. And he said, well, I want to communicate something with my cake. But, you know, it's an anti-discrimination law that doesn't target ideas at all. So this seemed to me to be much more like the person who starts a fire and uh, is prosecuted under an arson statute. One of the problems with Masterpiece Cake Shop was the facts were so poorly developed because Mm -hmm. they never really asked for, I don't think, specifically a generic cake. And it was unclear if he would even make a generic cake for anybody. And all of those facts were in dispute. I, well, I thought the, the facts were perfectly well-developed. The uh, couple came in. They said, we'd like you to bake a cake for our wedding. He said, I don't make cakes for same-sex weddings. And so he said, broadly, it doesn't matter what your cake is. It doesn't matter what the message is. I'm just not going to make you a cake. Straight-out discrimination. The <laughs> fact that he might have had a First Amendment claim if the facts had been different uh, you know, is just not relevant to the case. Well, so, so Andy, you, you've been writing recently about how, the, and brilliantly, about how the Supreme Court got all the facts wrong in the in the praying coach case this term. Mm-hmm. But going back to Masterpiece, just for a minute, mm-hmm. because I had actually conversations with people who had conversations with the lawyers. Um, <laughs> they took the position in the Supreme Court, or at, least in, or at least in some of the lower courts, maybe even the Supreme Court, that he was not asked to make a generic cake and maybe he would have, if there was a cake in the, in, the, in, the, in the freezer that was just a wedding cake with no inscription on it, he might have sold it to them. They were trying to convince the conservative justices that that's a, that was a relevant fact in the case. So I do think the facts were a little bit spottier. But it's, but it's just, but it's not true. It's, I know, not, I know it wasn't The fact true. that I had, uh, that the, the baker had intentions, if uh, I uh, say, uh, you know, a black customer says, and I say, you're black, out. Uh, and then it turns out that, uh, you know, no, there are actually lots of black people who I would have admitted doesn't have anything to do with the case. Yeah. He just said, I don't make cakes for same sex weddings. The fact that there might have been other things in his mind that he didn't disclose to anybody. It's just not any of the facts of the case. We agree. He anything in his head. You and I agree, but the lawyers made different representations. Anyway, uh, going uh, back to the I've t- looked at the record. I mean, they can't. Yeah. No, I mean, the law, no, I, I, I wrote at the time that the lawyers are effectively lying to the court. That's what I mean, I did. Yeah. And, and that's, 
Anyway, if we have time, we'll get to the, the judge, the praying coach. Um, your, your, the title of your book, I wanted to say, ask you one more question about this book. And again, people should read it and mm-hmm. buy it. I believe it's coming out. It's out now. It just came out. It's out. Yeah, just came out yeah. the last few days. Um, well, we're taping this. Yesterday. Okay, we're taping this on Wednesday. This pod yeah. will be out on Friday, I hope. Burning yeah. down the house, how libertarian philosophy was corrupted by greed and delusion. And I just want to really focus in on, before we leave this topic, greed and delusion. Who's greed? Who's delusion? And how was it corrupted? So uh, by corrupted, uh, well, corruption has two meanings. Mm-hmm. One is just distortion. If we talk about corrupted computer code. Right. It just means that, you know, it has been changed somehow and is no longer, uh, you know, the message has somehow been altered. But another meaning of corruption is that some interested party is deliberately distorting things for his own benefit. That, uh, you know, the judge is altering his legal judgment in response to a bribe. That's uh, right. right. And I think that both of those things are going on here. So as I talk about the degeneration from Friedrich Hayek to Murray Rothbard, Robert Nozick, Ayn Rand, Charles Koch, uh, that uh, you really have a coalition of two different folks. Uh, one are the principled libertarians like Randy Barnett, mm-hmm. who honestly believe that uh, having an absolutely minimal state is going to bring about a better world. And they function in alliance with business people who would like to be able to harm people without being bothered by the police. Right. And uh, so you saw that in, uh, I guess, the clearest illustration of that is when Trump, when he was running for office, talked about, you know, we're going to free you from oppressive government bureaucrats and regulations. And then once he got in, his people did everything they could to clear out all of the staff scientists and all of the expertise in all of the regulatory agencies because they were inconveniencing business. And if you are a business person who uh, wants to be able to make the money that you can get, if you're allowed to hurt people, then Trump was your guy. Yeah. No, in fact, um, after he was elected, three days after that, I wrote a piece saying, I don't know what abortion and affirmative action and all these issues have for the future. I do know this. Trump will appoint, if he gets the opportunity, judges who believe in deregulation. That's his strongest value. And that's what he's going to do. And I got to tell you, Gorsuch, among all of them, seems to be the most committed to this idea oh, yeah. of, of, of repealing the New Deal, basically, and going back to a pre-administrative. Mm-hmm. Just a few days ago, we heard the oral argument uh, where the court is seriously considering gutting the capacity of the federal government to deliver clean water. Right. All right. Yeah. And, and given climate change, it's, it's really scary. Two more issues. I'll let you go. Um, the big issues, so we'll do it quickly. But um, your work... <laughs> Um, on the 13th Amendment and abortion, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I find fascinating. As you know, I am not I'm – a, I'm a Thayerian minimal judicial review guy. So, you know, when I – in that hat, I have some skepticism. But in our real world where judges overreact all the time to things, um, mm-hmm. I, I, I think your thesis is fascinating. Can you give us a quick summary of your 13th Amendment abortion argument? Mm-hmm. So one of the live issues with respect to abortion is does the Constitution say anything about it? 
And the court in Roe versus Wade didn't do a very good job of explaining what was there in the Constitution. And I think that we've neglected the 13th Amendment, which prohibited slavery and involuntary servitude after the Civil War, compelling women to have babies against their will, seizing their bodies and directing them to purposes not their own, was constitutive of slavery, was part of slavery, was part of what slavery was for half of the slave population. The 13th Amendment means that we are not going to do again to human beings what we did before the Civil War. We're, we've been very bad. We're going to stop that. And so with all due respect to Thayerian minimalism, the 13th <laughs> Amendment means that there is a limit to how much the judiciary and the federal government is going to defer to the states. There are some things that you cannot do to people that right. people have a right not to have done to them. And that's the core of the 13th Amendment argument. I have a doctrinal elaboration uh, in three articles uh, that are available for free on the web. Uh, but that's the core of the argument. Also, I should be when I say I was using theorism as a shorthand. He actually did not believe in limited judicial review of state laws. It was mostly of, of Congress. I'm I'm more I'm more of a minimalist actually than theory. I don't want to get. Um, what do you say on that Thirteenth Amendment argument? What do you say to people who say that? Well, but the but the fetus deserves constitutional protection, and this is murdering the fetus. And that can't be protected by the 13th Amendment because, you know, we, we have the right to self-defense, but only in proportion to the harm that's being caused. Um, what do you say to people like that? Well, I begin, uh, you know, the status of the fetus is controversial and uncertain. Yeah. What is not uncertain is what you are doing to women. Uh, if you prohibit abortion. So uh, that, I think, shifts a burden of proof to the state to try to justify this thing that it's doing to women. Uh, now I've been through the philosophical literature, and I will tell you that uh, the debates about the moral status of the fetus are just in a state of stalemate. Yeah. Uh, that everybody comes out with uh, basically the assumptions they went in. Yeah. I take that to mean that the state hasn't met its burden of proof, or if I can set lawyerly talk about burdens of proof aside, that uh, you don't have enough justification morally for doing this awful thing to women that you are proposing to do. That's beautifully said. Um, I wrote a piece for the Huffington Post many years ago when that was still a thing. I think it still is a thing, but it's not quite the same thing it was. And um, I, what I said was for libertarians in America, we have some data, which is roughly 60%, 55% of Americans don't think that killing a fetus in the first trimester, mm -hmm. at least, is murder. Mm -hmm. So we have disagreement about that empirically shown in our country. If you are a true libertarian, then, your stance should be then government shouldn't regulate this because mm -hmm. you can't argue. You might disagree with uh, on the merits, but you can't disagree with the data. And if you really are libertarian, you should take into account what the rest of your country, men or women, feel about this issue. And you should be pro-choice. Um, and boy, did I get pushback from that piece. Am I wrong about that? Um, it wouldn't be. Uh, my take would not be exactly that. I mean, okay. you know, just either the fetus is or is not a bearer of rights. That's not dependent on public opinion polls. Okay. I will just tell you that I think that polls aside, uh, I don't think people who are arguing that a fetus is a bearer of rights have made their case. Okay. 
And so we're back to, uh, you know, you're doing something pretty bad to somebody without adequate justification. Yeah, and that's a better way of saying, frankly, what I was trying to say. So okay, I, I accept the friendly amendment there. Yeah. Um, last issue. So I've written a lot about originalism as people who mm-hmm. listen to this podcast know. So have mm-hmm. you. Um, and I want to ask you a very specific question about originalism, mm-hmm. which is my descriptive account that there has never been a consistent originalist justice on the United States Supreme Court. And the I have many, many data points for that. <laughs> but I, the one I want to throw at you is Judd Campbell's, I think, path-breaking work in the Yale Law mm-hmm. Journal that shows what, I, what we've all known, I think we've all known all along, which is if you mm-hmm. really care about the original meaning of the First Amendment, then what you mm-hmm. really care about is prior restraints. There's no question mm-hmm. that the printing press in England was banned in many ways and the founding fathers didn't want that here. And it was mm-hmm. almost all about prior restraints. The Alien mm-hmm. and Sedition Act kind of shows that, which was passed shortly mm-hmm. after ratification. Um, yet Thomas, Scalia, Black, all of the so-called Gorsuch self-identified originalists believe in an incredibly mm-hmm. robust First Amendment doctrine that goes mm-hmm. way beyond prior restraints and even to maybe Lochnerism, I think it does, in terms of commercial <laughs> speech and other areas. So, and, and, and I have a GRA now doing research on this, and the number of First Amendment cases decided by the Roberts Court itself is huge. Mm-hmm. No one has, no judge has ever put this originalist history in front of the American people in a written opinion. How originalist can they really be if they're willing to ignore it completely when it comes to free speech? Mm -hmm. Well, with respect to the question of whether they are honest originalists, uh, I would just tell people to read your book. Okay, Uh, thank you. Okay, thank you. But but with respect to uh, the question of uh, the First Amendment, one problem with originalism is that it is hostage to the next article. That, you know, Campbell's article is a few years old. Right. You know, maybe another article is going to come out uh, next year that refutes it. Uh, historians argue about the past. It's not the firmest foundation on which to base our foundational law. Uh, <coughs> I have an article called Why Do Some Originalists Hate America? Right. It's great. <laughs> I read it. I read it. Make this great. point about uh, the weaknesses of originalism. Yeah. Even with respect to uh, the prior restraint question, one person who rejected the prior restraint argument and argued that the First Amendment goes beyond prior restraints was the guy who wrote the First Amendment. (laughs) James Madison in the Virginia report a few years later said that the Sedition Act was unconstitutional and he made an argument based on the text and structure of the Constitution. Not clear that that argument was in his head at the time that he wrote it in 1791, but by the time that he is writing the Virginia report in 1799, uh, he thinks that this is an argument that uh, you can make. He thinks it's a pretty powerful argument. It does convince a lot of people. Uh, So, yeah, originalism is not just one thing. Andy, did Madison think it was a judicially enforceable right? Because they see one of the things no. I've been trying to get people to see, and I think Judd does show this, and I think it is persuasive, that the founding fathers' view of rights was not the same as judicially enforceable rights. They did not believe every right was a judicially enforceable right. That I'm sure about. I've done the research myself. 
Yeah, um, well, this is a difference among the framers. I mean, yeah. Madison had no particular faith in the judges, and right. uh, the Virginia Report is a campaign document right. trying to persuade people right. not to reelect John Adams. Right. But Hamilton, I think, has a stronger view of judicial review in Federalist 78. Uh, he thinks that the judges are going to play a role. So the framers were not unanimous on this question. Sure. Of course, that role was to strike down laws at an irreconcilable variance with the Constitution. Those are mm -hmm. Hamilton's exact words. Um, mm -hmm. He meant something very different, I think, than the type of aggressive judicial review we've seen Dred Scott for. Um, but that's, a, that's an argument mm -hmm. for a different day. Yeah. Um, I want to promote your book. It's really interesting. It's a fascinating study of libertarianism, which unfortunately means it's a fascinating study of our country today. Burning, yeah. burning down the house, how libertarianism, libertarian philosophy was uh, corrupted by greed and delusion. Uh, everybody should read it. And all of your work, I really mean it when I say I try to find your stuff all the time because I find you to be, and I want to, I want to make this point too, because I started this podcast really for the purpose of having conservatives and non-progressives on to argue with because I thought we needed that to be done. And it's grown to get people like you on as well. But you really do have a balance about your work that, that, that is, um, getting rarer and rarer among our leading mm -hmm. constitutional law theorists, of which you are one. So I really appreciate that part of your work. And, and thank you for that. And Thanks. thank you for being on this podcast. Thank you. This has been wonderful. Th thank you.